We are in Revelation chapter 11 and 12. We're going to put in at verse 15 of chapter 11. We're going to work our way through chapter 12. If you want to open your Bible there or navigate on your device, now would be the time. The topic, after he is thrown out of heaven down to earth, the devil goes about in a murderous rage seeking whom he may devour. The title of our message, the devil went down to Goria. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our morning. We pray that we would leave looking, sounding, acting, thinking a little bit more like Jesus than when we came in. Because, Lord, you're about the business of conforming us into his image by the ministry of your Holy Spirit who is here to teach us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Pam was so troubled by it, she wanted to report it to the police, or at very least, eBay. Instead, she called me at work. She had just received payment for an auction item. Along with the payment, she said that the seller had included a weird, threatening photograph of himself. (laughs) Well, of course, I was obsessed. This really happened. First thing I did when I arrived home was take a look at the photo. And sure enough, it was disturbing. It was of a guy with a giant mallet in one hand and a watermelon in the other. It was Ron Gallagher. He probably thought he was being generous giving Pam his autographed fan pick. Little did he know the effect it would have since she had no idea who he was. (laughs) Obviously, you know who Gallagher is. He's a comedian who uses props in his act, especially watermelons, which he smashes with that giant mallet. If you sit in the front row of one of his shows, you're sure to get wet and messy as he smashes a lot more things besides watermelons. You've probably been to other shows where you're warned you'll get wet depending upon where you're seated. And and if it's summertime, you may not be too upset about that. You might want those front row seats, but it just depends on what you're going to get splashed with. Seating is important in our text here in the revelation of Jesus Christ. The verses talk about both the wrath of God in chapter 11 and the wrath of Satan in chapter 12 affecting those who dwell upon the earth during the last half of the tribulation. It's going to be messy. We might say that all the inhabitants of the earth will have a front row seat to wrath. We won't, and by we, I mean the believers of the church age. We're going to be seated before God's throne in heaven, according to chapter 11, while wrath is reigning upon the earth. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, from where you will be seated... You'll be spared from the wrath of God. And number two, from where you will be seated, you'll be a spectator to the wrath of Satan. Let's take a look, first of all, in chapter 11 at our seating, uh, being spared from the wrath of God. Now, Jesus, you'll remember, took a scroll from his father's hands and he began to open its seven seals in order. When he opened the seventh seal, it revealed seven trumpets that were to be blown in order. We've heard six of them so far in this book. And we've seen the events that have been associated with them. Now we're going to hear the seventh and final trumpet blast. It is a spectacular note of triumph. And so verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The seventh trumpet is momentous. It reveals the final strategies of our heavenly father, to redeem lost creation. Dr. J. Vernon McGee points out that the word kingdoms is singular. 
Though we see many sovereign nations and we talk of the succession of various kingdoms throughout the history of the world, the Bible is more concerned with who is ruling the world as its king. Who is ruling? Well, the Bible says that Satan is the god of this world, that he is the ruler of this world, and that he is the prince of the power of the air. Those are serious titles. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, the devil offered the Lord all the kingdoms of this world if he would just bow down and worship him. He thought of himself as the king over all of them, past, present, and future. Jesus did not dispute Satan's claim upon the kingdoms of men, but it wasn't by bowing down to the devil that Jesus would redeem the kingdoms of men and become king. It was by being lifted up on the cross at Calvary in his crucifixion. That's how he would defeat the devil and win the kingdom back. Now, the verb tense of have become indicates an absolute certainty about Jesus' kingship before the fact is accomplished. It doesn't mean we are in some sense already in the kingdom that they're speaking of. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're not talking about a mystical spiritual rule of God over the earth. We're talking about a literal kingdom with Jesus ruling from the earthly city of Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is not yet. It is coming. It is coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation with the return of Jesus Christ to earth. But the Bible speaks of it as if it's certain because it is. In verse 16, and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. When we first were introduced to the 24 elders, we gave lots of reasons why we believe they represent the church resurrected and raptured to heaven prior to the beginning of the tribulation. Thrones is translated seats in the King James Version of the Bible, but any seat in the throne room of heaven would itself be a throne. I'm thinking it's stadium seating of some kind because after all, there are going to be billions of Christians around the throne and everybody wants to get a look. I don't even go to theaters anymore that don't have stadium seating. You can't pay me to go to a regular theater. It just There's always somebody with an enormous head that sits in front of you. And so, <laughs> well, you know, it's true. You wouldn't laugh. And so there's, I don't know, I'm just speculating that there'll be stadium seating. And somehow, as I was thinking about this, I thought, yet somehow there will be no nosebleed seats. We'll all be full participants. Heaven's going to be a wonderful place that we can't fully understand. This is at least the fourth time we've seen the church fall prostrate before the Lord in adoring worship. We'll see it again in chapter 19, just before we return with Jesus Christ in his second coming. It should encourage us to be full participants now in worship, whether it's public or private. It doesn't mean we must fall down. That's something that we're going to do plenty of in heaven. People, they want to say, oh, you know, in heaven, the uh, church falls down. So unless we fall down in our worship before the Lord, then we're not fully worshiping. It's the appropriate response when the seventh trumpet is blown. Uh, and, you know, you have to reserve something for really special events. Uh, engaging in worship means just worshiping in ways that are appropriate, but being engaged in it, being a full participant in it. In verse 17, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. Because God is almighty... He's able to hold everything together while working out his plan to redeem lost mankind and the fallen creation. 
You know, when I studied philosophy at the university and, and it continues today, uh, and, and among other people as well, there's an idea that, well, maybe there is a God, but if there is, he doesn't care anymore about this universe. He started it, he let it go, we're on our own because we see the things happening in the world. We, we can't reconcile how, uh, how God is involved. But this is telling us that God is holding everything together while it seems like it's falling apart, working out his plan, which we understand as Christians and we see coming to fulfillment in this book. It says he is and was and is to come. That reminds us that God has been working out that plan of salvation since eternity past. He's working in human history now and he will bring it to its conclusion. It says you have taken your great power and reign. That means the time will come. It's at the seventh trumpet for God to finish what he began. And what he began is fantastic. It is the redemption of a lost race of people, uh, the descendants of Adam and Eve, who sinned and brought ruin into God's creation. And God said, that's all right, I'm coming, I'll save you. All you have to do is believe in me. Verse 18, the nations were angry. Your wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Throughout the tribulation, God is seeking to save men from every nation. Instead, they are angry at his seeming interference, and they reject his servants and his salvation. It's always astonishing to read the Gospels from the point of view of what Jesus was offering and how it was received. He raised Lazarus from the dead, and the Jewish religious leaders got together and said, we need to kill both of those guys. That's incredible when you think about it. What does it show us? It shows us that the heart of man, the human heart, is the hardest substance known to man. God's wrath is not like human anger. It's not revenge, which Klingons say is a dish, a dish best served cold. Second Klingon reference in two weeks. So, you, Star Trek, I mean, it just permeates our culture. Wrath is God's measured but necessary response to sin. For a believer... God's wrath has been taken by Jesus Christ on the cross. For the non-believer, God's wrath is coming. This declaration of the final judgment comes with still time to repent. In wrath, God remembers mercy and seeks to save. He keeps warning that a day is coming when all offers to be saved will be off the table. But until then, he's not willing that any should perish. God wants to reward you and he will. God is not willing to, you should perish and be destroyed, but you will if you do not repent. And so as I'm fond of reminding you almost every week, this is the grace of God's wrath. Yes, his wrath is intensifying throughout the tribulation, but it's because the time is coming for him to return when there will be no opportunity to get saved. In Egypt, when God was going to deliver the children of Israel, it's similar to the plagues that Moses was uh, tasked to bring. They escalated and escalated, uh, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. He would somehow, sometimes relent a little bit, but then he would harden his heart until finally there was the death of the firstborn, the worst of the plagues, of course. And then Pharaoh said, get out. We'll have nothing to do with you anymore. And then he relented even of that and went after the children of Israel and sought to destroy them at the Red Sea. And, and so God brought those plagues one after another, intensifying them 
so that Pharaoh's heart would change, so that he would agree with him, not disagree with him. And that's what's happening in the Great Tribulation. Yes, it's terrible, but it's not as bad as an eternity separated from God in hell. Verse 19, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. People are fascinated with finding the lost Ark of the Covenant, which was a copy of this one that you read about in heaven. At the time of the Babylonian invasion and destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in the 6th century BC, uh, Jeremiah took the Ark and he hid it somewhere. Some people think it is beneath the ruins uh, of the old temple in a secret chamber. The Ethiopians have said for years they have it, it's kind of crazy. It's like in a little house smaller than the fellowship hall with a fence around it. I'm thinking, just break in. But I guess that's, how Ameri- that's why we get the reputation of being ugly Americans. Uh, but they say they have it. Uh, others have different theories and all. I don't know that it will ever be found. I do know that it doesn't matter if it's found because God's presence is not going to be in the earthly tribulation temple. It's not necessary for it to be found in order for there to be a temple because Herod's temple that Jesus ministered in didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, And so it's an interesting thing. I watch all the specials about where it is and who thinks they know where it is now because it's fascinating, but it's it's a sidelight. It's not something that really matters uh, in the end times. Now, the physical phenomena mentioned here, lightnings, noises, thunderings, earthquake, great hail, those are just physical announcements of the final judgments that are coming upon the earth. You can uh, depict the tribulation as a great storm, the storm of the centuries. And and so these kinds of things are reminding us that it's going to break out more severely during the last half of the tribulation as the seventh trumpet is blown. Because when the seventh trumpet is blown, it's going to reveal seven what are called bowls of God's wrath of his final judgments that are poured out in rapid succession upon Christ rejecting men on the earth. We will be safe, seated in heaven, worshiping God. Now, it's become fashionable to accuse us who are pre-tribulational. We mean before the tribulation will be removed. Uh, They accuse us of being escapists, wanting to leave earth behind to fend for itself. They speak of the so-called secret rapture, as if it's some recent made-up teaching. And you'll, you'll see that sometimes in articles and blog posts and recent literature. People talk about the secret rapture, as if we're part of a, a, almost a cult you know, that believes in this teaching that no one's ever heard of before. And maybe you've not encountered that. Hopefully you haven't. But it's very popular right now in theological seminaries, and especially among younger Christians who think that they have more of a social consciousness than we do, and they're more worried about what's happening on planet Earth than being removed from planet Earth. All I have to say is this, this isn't my plan. This isn't our plan. We didn't get together at a Calvary Chapel worship conference and say, hey, let's think of a way to get out of here before the tribulation. I know we'll make up a secret rapture that no one's ever heard of. No, this is what the Bible is teaching. You see here clearly in this chapter, the 24 elders around the throne. We've already proven in earlier chapters, it's the church. And then God's wrath is poured out. And then the devil is thrown to earth and his wrath is is, uh, received by those who dwell on the earth. This is God's idea. 
God determined to remove the church prior to the tribulation and to keep us from the day of wrath that is to come upon the earth. He's the one who will seat us on those thrones in heaven while his wrath is being poured out during the seventh trumpet blast. It's the plan of God. Now in chapter 12, from where you will be seated, you'll be a spectator of the wrath of Satan. Signs and symbols get a bad rap in the Revelation. People always say the book is impossible to interpret because after all, there are so many signs. Uh, you've probably heard this from somebody, or you will. You say, hey, what are you guys doing at church? We're studying the Revelation. Oh, I don't know how you can even understand that. It's so filled with weird symbols and signs. As I'm fond of pointing out, signs and their symbols are designed to communicate, not to confuse. They are a universal human language. When you travel overseas, or travel anywhere really, but especially overseas and don't know the language, it's a joy to be able to distinguish between a man and a woman on those doors and to figure out which door you're supposed to go to. Now, I know that's getting messed up now, uh, but still, uh, you know, it's meant to communicate so you don't have to kind of, you know, fend for yourself with Chinese characters. Which, by the way, those of you who get tattoos, be careful of those Chinese characters. Um, I don't know if they mean what you think they mean. Anybody have? No, I can't ask that. True, there are odd signs. The Newcastle Tramway Authority posted a sign, this is a real sign, saying, touching wires causes instant death, $200 fine. <laughs> Which I think, I think when you die, doesn't Social Security still give you $250 for burial? I think that's their burial price. It's based on a medieval burial scheme. <laughs> So maybe they're just saying, you're going to die and we want the first 200 bucks, you know. Here's another sign. I think I understand. This is a real sign. Garbage only, no trash. Now, I figured out the difference between dirt and clean, fill dirt. You ever see those signs? Clean, fill dirt wanted. When I was a kid, I used to think that was so hilarious because dirt was dirt. But now I know that there is clean dirt as well as dirty dirt. But I don't know what the difference between garbage and trash is. So maybe, uh, maybe we'll take a field trip to the King's Waste Recycling Authority and they can explain it. And then one more sign. I just thought this was funny. This is a real sign. Sign not in use. And so they have to let you know that this sign is not a useful sign at all. Now, these are the exceptions, not the rule. Signs and their symbols normally help us. The opening verses of chapter 12 are at once the weirdest and the clearest of these signs and symbols. If you're going to get confused about signs and symbols, it's right here, and it's actually impossible to get confused. Verse 1, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. If you were Jewish... You'd immediately turn to Genesis chapter 37, where Joseph tells his family about a dream, saying, look, I have dreamed a dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars will represent Joseph's father and mother and brothers, the patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. Joseph is the 12th star. The sun, the moon, and the 12 stars represent the nation of Israel. We know this is the correct interpretation because in the very next verse in Genesis 37, it says, so he told it 
to his father and his brothers. And his father, Jacob, rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And so Jacob interprets that symbol for us. The woman of Revelation 12 is the nation of Israel. It was through the nation of Israel that the Savior would come as God and man. God promised Adam and Eve he would send a Savior into the world. He'd be born of a woman from the human race. As the Bible unfolds, God continually narrows down the lineage of that person. God chooses Abraham at one point to establish a new nation, the nation of Israel. The Savior would be born to a descendant of Abraham's. He would be born to a Jewish woman. And yes, that woman was Mary, but the focus here isn't on Mary, except that she happened to be that Jewish woman from that nation. Verse 12, or verse 2, excuse me. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, this is interesting. You might say that Israel was with child throughout her history until he was born. That history is marked by constant pain as the nation so often disobeyed God and was disciplined by God. Nevertheless, God was true to his promise and the child was born. Uh, Verse three, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems on his heads. Now he's gonna be identified in verse nine as that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So there's no uh, doubt as to his identity. When we get to chapter 17, we'll see that the description of heads and horns and diadems refers to Satan's past and future rule over certain kingdoms of the earth. Verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars in heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Stars of heaven is an Old Testament title for angels. When Satan fell into sin, the Bible says he took with him one third of the angels in heaven. They joined with him in his rebellion. The phrase, threw them to the earth, means that Satan and his fallen angels operate on the earth against the human race. The gory imagery of the devil standing before the woman seeking to devour her child is a symbolic summary of Satan's continual interference with the birth of the promised Messiah. Satan knew that the Savior would be born of a woman and then a Jewish woman, and so he has tried throughout history to thwart that birth. It's a very simple strategy, really. God says, I'm going to send a savior, and Satan says, I'm going to kill him so that your promises fail. And and that's why Satan was behind the very first murder. When Cain killed Abel, Satan was attempting to cut off the line through which the savior would be born. When God began to reveal his plan to establish a nation using Abraham, Satan's efforts became focused on destroying his offspring. Biblical history is full of his diabolical schemes. At the birth of Moses, Pharaoh ordered the death of all male children born to Jewish women. During the days of David, King Saul and others reportedly attempted to kill David, through whom the Savior was promised to come. The book of Esther records the attempts of a man named Haman to exterminate the Jewish race. When Jesus was born, King Herod issued a decree to slaughter all the Jewish babies. These were all satanic attempts to devour the child. 
Extra biblical history is full with extermination accounts. The Holocaust in World War II, that's just the most recent one that we can refer to. Despite all of the devil's murderous designs to devour Jesus, he was born through Israel. Verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Now, notice that. We know that Jesus will rule. It says here he was to rule, but instead was caught up to God. What happened? Well, what happened was the Jews rejected Jesus as their king, and the kingdom was therefore put on hold. Between that event and the next verse in our text, about 2,000 years have already passed. We live in that parenthesis. The Revelation picks up the story in the middle of the tribulation. You see, this story here is about Israel and about God's dealings with Israel in particular. We're already in heaven. Uh, we're not in this story. We're seated before the throne in heaven. And so this story picks up 2,000 years later, still future to us. And in verse 6, it says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. This speaks of Israel being divinely protected for the last half of the tribulation. Jesus mentioned this in Matthew 24. He warned Jews living in Jerusalem and Judea to flee for their lives. Some have suggested that the place prepared by God is the city of Petra. It might be, maybe it is, that's a good candidate geographically, but we're not told. God is going to divinely protect Israel someplace on earth uh, as the devil comes after them. It says in verse 7, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. In the book of Job, we learn something amazing. Satan still has access to heaven. God calls him there to report his activities, and it seems to be a regular event. Our cultural understanding of God ruling in heaven and the devil ruling in hell and that warfare going on, it's not really the biblical uh, understanding at all. God is in charge and Satan has to report to him. Kind of bothers me that Satan has access to heaven, but he does until this point in human history. His normal base of operations isn't heaven. It seems to be the atmosphere around the earth. That's why he's called the prince of the power of the air, meaning the atmosphere around the earth. And so that's where he hangs out. At the blowing of the seventh trumpet, just past the middle of the tribulation, he's going to be fully and finally cast down to earth by the archangel Michael in what is described as war in heaven. His privileges will be revoked. They'll change the access codes at the gate. So he'll, he'll try and punch in and he won't be able to get in anymore. He'll be kicked out of heaven. He'll only have three and a half years on earth until he is cast into the abyss for a thousand years. All the fallen angels, those we call demons, will be on earth at once with him until they too are incarcerated. And so during the last half of the tribulation, Satan and his demons, third of the angels, are going to be confined to the earth. It's going to be kind of like a demon gitmo, uh, only they'll be free and they will wreak havoc on the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. A loud voice makes a proclamation in heaven. 
We know it's a human voice because it says Satan is the accuser of our brethren. And so heaven has an opening for an announcer. If you'd like to start planning for that, my little grandson, Zeke, right now, he's an announcer. Everything he says is an announcement. I want candy. It's just like, you know, Sunday at the Fontana Drag Raceway. You know, I mean, he just got, he's got that voice and that presence. And so heaven's going to have an announcer. Whoever it is lets all the inhabitants know that Satan and his demons will not be allowed access to heaven ever again. Hear ye, hear ye. The word salvation could be translated the salvation. It refers to the total, final, complete redemption of creation. Although still three and a half years away from this point, it is so certain that the voice can proclaim the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. The end is inevitable. It will happen just as we are reading. It doesn't mean it has happened. It means it's going to happen. Satan's primary activity through the ages is mentioned. He is the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night. Read Job chapters 1 and 2 and you'll see exactly how this plays out. The seed, uh, the foundation for the book of Job, God calls Satan to heaven, says, have you considered my servant Job, how upright and righteous that he is? And Job accuses him, or Satan accuses him over and over and over again. Uh, And so he is the accuser of the brethren. Satan's accusations mean nothing because our sins are forgiven by the Lord. We are in him. And when the father sees us, he sees Jesus. Even if Satan is saying things that are true about us and that are awful, which all of us have awful things that we think and do, God says, well, that's true, but Jesus, my son, died for them, rose from the dead. I've justified them by grace through faith in him. I see them as just as if they'd never sinned because of my son. And Satan goes, oh, well, let me try some more. You know, Satan, he's just... He's one-dimensional in one sense. I mean, he's supremely uh, beautiful, the Bible says, and amazingly articulate. He's, uh, you know, intelligent beyond understanding. But his strategies are pretty brutal. He's just going to accuse and accuse and accuse, even though we have an advocate with Jesus Christ in heaven. He'll rob from you, deceive you, and murder you every time. Um, He just, you know just comes right at you. He's like the Mike Tyson of boxing. He just comes right at you and punches you into oblivion. There's no strategy really except to you just getting punched out. And you know, people always study the strategies of Satan. He lies, kills, and destroys uh, and robs. That's what he's trying to do. And all the while he's accusing you of being less than you ought to be. So that's what he's up to. Verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Verse 11, believers. Verse 12, non-believers. Verse 13, Jews. The language used in verse 11 describes the defense of a martyr. Secure in the blood of the lamb, he or she won't waver from giving their testimony of the grace and forgiveness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, even though it means martyrdom. You'd think the devil would cut non-believers in verse 12 some slack, but his bloodlust won't allow it. He's a murderer from the beginning. He'll kill anyone. Verse 13 continues the Old Testament symbolism of Israel as the woman through whom the Messiah was born. 
Satan will turn his wrath upon exterminating the Jews. If he can kill every last Jew on planet Earth, there would be none left at Jesus' second coming, and it would defeat the promises of God, who said that he would save all living Israelites at that time. And so that's the final push of the devil, is to just kill everything in his path, especially Jews. Verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and time and half a time from the presence of the serpent. This phrase, time, time, and half a time, it's another way of saying um, three and a half years. Uh, it, the revelation keeps giving us that same period of time with different descriptions so that we won't miss it, so that we'll know we're talking about the last half of the tribulation. The eagle is not a reference to the United States, I'm sad to say. That's wishful thinking. Uh, people see this, and they, especially 20 years ago, when we were a really, really strong ally of Israel's. People say, well, the United States is going to help them in that day to you know, get them out and to keep them from the devil. I'd like to think about us fighting the devil as a nation. I mean, that'd be, you know, pretty cool. You know, maybe our new fighter plane has a fight the devil mode, uh, but I doubt it. The only reason anyone thinks this is because the eagle happens to be our national symbol. But the eagle has been used by many nations, past and present, including Nazi Germany, which certainly was not a friend to the Jew. Wikipedia lists at least 24 nations which presently use an eagle. That's why I think Ben Franklin was right. We should have used the turkey. <laughs> ben Franklin wanted the turkey to be our national bird. And, man, they are fierce when cornered. Uh, but anyway, and they're good fried, too. But <laughs> God himself is the wings of the eagle, not any nation on the earth. Check out Exodus 19.4, Deuteronomy 32, 11, and 12. The Lord compares his protection of Israel to eagles' wings. Like a mother eagle carrying her young to safety, so God will protect a remnant of the Jews. This is a divine protection by the Lord. Verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Now, it says like a flood, that alerts us this is figurative language. Just because we take the Bible literally and the book of the Revelation literally doesn't mean it doesn't use figurative language from time to time. Like a flood, the, de the devil's attack will be sudden and terrifying, like the bursting of a dam threatening everything in its path. How many of you have seen the movie San Andreas? Spoiler alert. A major dam in Nevada bursts in the movie. <laughs> And although it probably kills millions of people, on the screen it is cool. <laughs> so we all know what it's like for a dam to burst. But the earth, verse 16, helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. So if Satan's attack is compared to a flood, God's protection is like a drain that opens up and swallows up the flood. It all reminds me of the Green Lantern. Remember the Green Lantern? In comics and stuff, he had the power ring that he had. To, I just thought it was crazy. He had to charge it. But, I mean, really? You have all these amazing powers. You have to stand in front of a lander. I'll be with you in a minute. <laughs> Hang on. And, uh, but he would make things out of his ring. So if there was a flood coming, he would make a drain. You know, that kind of a thing. It was a tit-for-tat kind of a thing. This is going to be way cooler than that, but 
you know. My brain was, uh, I grew up on comic books when they were 12 cents at the corner liquor store. That's, that's the world uh, I lived in. Anyway, verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. The rest of her offspring are believing Jews. Those immediately flee will be kept safe, Jesus said in Matthew 24. So the devil will go after the rest of the Jews, any Jews, any place to kill them. All the while, you will be safe from his wrath, seated in heaven, falling before God in worship. Now, even before we arrive in heaven, there are verses indicating we are already there, already seated there. Ephesians 2, 6 speaks of us saying, we are raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, since we're seated here on the earth, how are we also seated in heaven? What does that mean? Well, Colossians 3, 1 gives a commentary on what it means. We read, since you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. And so Jesus was raised from the dead. When you become a Christian, you share in the benefits of that resurrection. You're born again. He gives you his Holy Spirit to indwell you. He's able to pour his spirit out upon you to empower you uh, to say yes to him and no to sin, those kinds of things. Spiritually speaking, you are therefore raised from the dead and empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, to walk in newness of life. Old things pass away, all things become new, and then you're changed from moment to moment, from glory to glory, more into the image of Christ. You can approach life now knowing you will be seated on a throne in heaven. Your seat is reserved. It's so secure, so sure, that you can proceed as if you were seated there right now. So you have a seat reserved in heaven in this scene as it's going to unfold. And knowing what you know about the future and sitting in that environment, sitting in that place, it ought to really affect everything that you do and everything that you think and everything that you say. That destiny, when embraced, has a powerful influence on your life. And so we're not just talking about being seated in the future. There's that sense in which we're already seated there if we look at our lives now from that perspective. So are you destined for the throne? Well, you are if you've repented of your sin and trusted Jesus Christ to save you. You are if you're a Christian. If you're not yet seated in heavenly places, you can be. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. His grace operates on the heart. Ooh. It's my microphone. That was kind of a cool effect. His grace <laughs> operates on your heart right now, freeing your will so that you can make a decision for Christ. I don't know, maybe there's somebody here, maybe there's many people here who aren't genuine Christians you, you believe in God, you even believe in Jesus, but even the demons believe and they tremble. But you've never really given your life to the Lord. You've never realized that your sin needs to be forgiven, uh, not just, you know, dealt with. I mean, it has to be forgiven by the death of a Savior. If that's the case, you can confess your sin, come to the Lord and be saved. And it's our prayer that you would.
Let's have a word of prayer as we close. Now, Father, we thank you so much for these things. I thank you, Lord, for making them clear to us. Obviously, people for centuries have been concerned about and interested in the future, and you are giving us a sure, secure future. The things that you say are going to happen are going to happen exactly the way you portray them. And I thank you, Lord, that we also see in this future your attempts, many attempts, intense attempts to save those that are lost.